If you have a Bible, turn with me to Haggai, chapter 2. <clears throat> Haggai only has two chapters, so we're going to finish that up uh, this morning. Uh, we've been in a series in the uh, Old Testament prophets, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Malachi. And so we're going to finish up Haggai uh, today, and then we're going to go to Malachi for a few weeks and finish up our series in the Old Testament. And I uh, really have been enjoying uh, this. And, and one of the, I think, the, the common threads that, that why we called the series Hope in the Ruins is that despite the rebellion of God's people, despite their hard-heartedness, despite their, their willingness to turn from the living God and turn to idols and, and all this, is that there's still hope in the ruins. And, and I find that very comforting as someone who struggles and as someone who falls on their face often and, and life doesn't always go as, as planned, is that God is always faithful even when we are not. And God is always at work even uh, and when we aren't doing what he would want us uh, uh, to do. And you see that thread of grace and mercy through the Old Testament. As much as people want to say, well, you know, God just seems very angry in the Old Testament. He seems like he's killing everyone and there's judgment. Yes, that's true. But there's always a, a silver lining of, of grace and mercy that God is saying, but I'm still with you. I still keep my promises, even in your stubbornness, even in your sin. So I've been really comforted by that. So this morning we're going to read Haggai chapter two. I'm going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Um, but I'm only going to read right now the first nine verses or so, and I'll touch on a couple other verses. But let's read the first nine. If you need to look in the table of contents, there's no shame in your game. Do it. Um, it's a small book. If you flip too fast, you might miss it. Uh, if you do have a chair Bible, 791 in your chair Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to pick one up if you don't have one. Or just read on the screen. You could do that too. Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let us pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we, we thank you for Haggai. We thank you um, just as we, we look at this text, these texts this morning. It's such a, a beautiful picture of how you work in the ruins. <laughs> how you bring hope into the ruins, that, God, you are, are with us, God, that, that, that you uh, take our lives that, that often just seems so, progress seems so slow and, and transformation seems so slow and these, these sinful habits and these things that we still do, God, that, but you are still faithful, God, and you were faithful to Israel even when they wanted nothing to do with you and you were faithful with your disciples when they were confused and you're faithful with us and so we thank you, God, for that and we just pray now that, God, you would just continue to work by your spirit in and through us, God, teach us and show us this morning, illuminate our hearts and minds, not just to be hearers of your word, but to be doers as well. So help us now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 
as I mentioned at the beginning in my little introduction, is that God always seems to be working in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of, of the ruins. And that's, again, the threat of Zephaniah, it's the threat of Haggai, it's going to be the threat of Malachi, but the whole Old Testament, the whole scriptures, that, that, that even when, when we turn our backs on God, God is still faithful. God doesn't uh, break his, his promises. And, and yet, I think if we're honest, a lot of times we look at our own lives and we just kind of go, yeah, I, I get that, I understand that, but shouldn't I be further along? Like, like shouldn't I um, be more transformed? Shouldn't I be more sanctified? Shouldn't I love God more, love my neighbor more than I do? Maybe you've been walking with God for, for a long time, and you just feel like, I just have these habits and these struggles. Like, why, why is that? Like, shouldn't I, you know, I know God's at work, I know he's faithful, I know he's with me, but it just feels like this is really slow and really, really painful. And I was thinking about that this week, and I, and I understand, I think I'm more sympathetic to why self-help is such a big thing in our culture. Like, if you go to Barnes & Noble, the self-help section is just enormous, right? Um, but I get it, because what is it? It's, it's I look at my life, and I go, well, I'm just not where I want to be. I, maybe financially, or, or, or spiritually, or, or, or I'm not a good dad, or a good wife, or a good husband, or, or taking care of my kids. I just feel like things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And if we've, in our honest moments, we've probably all said that a time or two. Like, why do I still get angry the way I do? Why, why do I still struggle with whatever it may be? And see, but the problem with self-help is that, that the, the solution is, well, you just had to have a better self-image. You, you just have to have, you know, think better thoughts about yourself. You just have to have a plan, right? You just have to have some, some processes to kind of, you know, you have to have some daily affirmations or, or whatever it is to help, help you feel better about yourself. But what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the scriptures, what we know and understand of ourselves is that our problems go much deeper. The stain is way too deep than just to speak happy thoughts to ourselves. That, that our stain, because of sin, and, and it's deep in our DNA, is that, that, that we have, have, have not lived the life that we'd want to live because we've, we've been in rebellion against God. And, and because of that, we've, we've, we've hurt other people. And because of that, we've, we, we, we haven't lived in God's creation as we, we should. And so, so just telling ourselves, okay, get your, get your act together, just have happy thoughts. We need to go deeper into that transformation that God uh, brings us. And I, and I love the way uh, the Heidelberg Catechism talks about sanctification and transformation. It says, in this life, we're only going to see small beginnings. Because that's the reality of it. I think sometimes we've been sold a bill of goods, like we should be perfect, you know, right? We should never struggle. We should never fall. But he said, but, but he said in this life that we have, however many years God gives us, we're only going to see small beginnings. So what I want to do the, the, this morning is, is to look at, from Haggai how God begins to do that transforming work in our lives, how God begins to transform his people, um, even in the, the midst of the temple being broken down, even in the midst uh, of their lives, their city, everything being broken down. How does God actually work in and through us to make us who God would want us to be, to make us people that love him and, and love our neighbors as ourselves? Like, what does that actually look like and how does that happen? Well, I think Haggai 2 is a great place to see God at work and, and how, that, how that works. Now, as we look at our text this morning, one, I think, important detail is if you look at the first verse, and, and we've seen this a couple times in the Old Testament uh, in our series, is the attention to detail. That he's trying to, uh, Haggai is trying to show us um, exactly what is going on and why this is, is significant. So he gives us a date. He says, in the seventh month, or the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Um, speak now to this rebel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you? Who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not, 
Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, why is that date significant? Because this date is near the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, for, for some of us, that might not mean anything, but, but in the Old Testament, if you go to Leviticus 23, you'll see these lists of festivals that Israel was to participate in. And one of those was the Feast of Tabernacles, or some would call it the Feast of, of Booths. Now, what this was, was they would, they would go out, they would um, do sacrifices to the Lord, but they would leave their homes, and they would set up these booths or these mini tabernacles, and they would live in them for seven days. Okay, now that sounds kind of kind of crazy. Like, so we have to leave our, our family, we have, we have to leave our, our loved ones, we have to do these festivals, but we have to go live out kind of in the wilderness, like in these little booths, these little tabernacles uh, for seven days. That seems seems odd, but but what God was doing through these these festivals was reminding them of their deliverance from Egypt, that that God had delivered them from Egypt and they had wandered in the desert, but God was with them, and so they would enact these festivals to remember essentially the Old Testament gospel. Remember when I redeemed you. Remember when I saved you. Remember what it was like to just wander around and remember when you didn't have any hope in the world and how I came and rescued you and led you to the promised land. And so when we pick up Haggai, we're post-exile. They've already been in Babylon for 70 years. They've come back to Jerusalem. The temple's destroyed, and now it needs to be rebuilt. And now they're coming to a festival, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And basically what this is is kind of their second exodus. That's what the, the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. It's a time to remember deliverance. It's a time to remember salvation. It's a time to remember when all was lost, but God came and saved you and made you his, his people. It's to remember that God is, is with you. And, and so, okay, that's interesting, but, but imagine the, the disconnect. So that they get that, okay, yeah, okay, God, we're supposed to do these festivals and honor you and that, but they look around and go, that's not reality, is it? <laughs> that, that, that's not where we are. We saw that in chapter one, right? Instead of worshiping the, the living God, they're, they're, they're going to idols. They're, they're calling on all these gods. They're trying to make sense of their, <clears throat> of their lives. They're going down another path. And so they look at the temple. The temple's in shambles. They don't have any identity. They don't, they don't even worship God properly because the temple needs to be rebuilt. And all these things are falling apart. They're, you know, economically and, and spiritually and socially, all these things have been ripped away. And yet God says, just trust me, I'm, I'm with you. It, it, there's, there's hope in the, in the ruins. And what I love about God when we think about transformation is he's dealing with in reality. He's not dealing with fantasy. He, he's looking at their lives. He's looking at your life and go, yeah, you are a mess. I can work with messes. That's what I do. It's who I am, right? If we're not a mess, if we don't have a, a sin problem, we don't have, have, have this rebellious spirit against the holy God and against wanting to harm everyone else around us, if, if it's just self-help and we just need to speak happy thoughts to ourselves... Well, then what do we need the Spirit for? What do we need Jesus for? We don't need him, right? But he goes, I get it. I know where you're at, but this is where I'm going to do my best work. This is how I'm going to make you all that I've designed you to be, and they need transformation. But So, so the question is, well, how does God do that? How does he actually do that? And I think from these texts this morning, there's at least four, there could be more, there could be less, but I'm going to pull out four truths on how God transforms our, our lives from Haggai to four truths. Here, here's the first one I want us to see. It's very clear, and it's, th- this is just very, I'm going to say transformational a lot this morning. Um, this is very transformational in the sense of how we understand how we change. Truth one, transformation happens by grace-driven effort. 
Transformation happens by grace-driven effort. What do I mean by that? Well, so the cultural response, self-help would say, well, my marriage is falling apart. You know, I need more money. I need, I need this. Well, I just need to, to work harder, right? I, need, I have an addiction. I've got to work harder at it. My child's not getting good grades. Maybe they're not behaving. So I just need to work harder, try harder, you know, self-determination, pull up my bootstraps, whatever, whatever it is. Now, in a sense, that's exactly what God is calling his people to do. Notice with me in, in, in verse uh, you read in 2 and 3 just how, hey, look at look how things are. Things have fallen apart. Remember the former glory when the temple was built? But look at it now. It's not good. But notice what he says in verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, so he's, he's giving them a command. You, you need to get to work. You need to rebuild the temple. Everything is in shambles, yes. But, but you must get to work. There's no excuse for passivity or despair. It's time to get to work. And we know in our lives that no one stumbles into godliness. No one. You give me a, a godly, loving, kind, gracious person, not a perfect person, and you'll see someone who, who spends regular time in the scriptures and in prayer, part of a, a church family, quick to repent, <laughs> humble, right? All these things. Not perfect by any means. But, but there's work involved, isn't there? there? There's not just this sitting back and somehow the Holy Spirit's just going to come and, and change me and make me the person that God would want me to be. There's actually work involved, just like here with Israel. The temple's not going to get built by just you praying about it. You've got to go get the supplies. You've got to put the wood in, in place. And obviously I'm not a builder, so there's, there's some kind of things going on. Get a new drill. I don't, I don't know how that works. But, but there, there's work involved. Now, the reason why I say transformation happens by grace-driven effort is because, don't miss this, it's not just about work. There's a work that is driven by the grace and the mercy that's already come to us. Because did you notice what he, what he says in verse 4? Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And you could even rewind that and go, I've always been with you, so now go to work. Right? God hasn't broken his promises. This is still God's people. He's already made a covenant with him. He's not going to break those promises. He says, I redeemed you from Israel now because I already have redeemed you. I've made this, this covenant with you. I've, I've invited you into relationship with me. Now work because of what I've already done for you. That's what grace-driven effort is all about. That, that us wanting to be changed, us wanting to, be, to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, us wanting to be more holy and godly, we work for that, not because we're earning some kind of you know, uh, brownie points or spiritual merit points that somehow God's more happy with us, but it's because he's already done these things. Now, I joyfully delight in knowing you, following you, obeying you, because you're already with me. This isn't self-help. This isn't will, mere willpower and strength. It's because of what God has already done for us. And that's how God has always worked. We see it all over the scriptures. If you remember in Exodus 19, um, before the, the, the Ten Commandments, um, God comes and meets Moses, and he makes this promise to Moses and his people. And I love this because this shows us exactly how this works. We, God doesn't say just obey my commands and, and, and gird it up, right? And, and just work hard and just, you know, just, just put your mind to it and just pray more and then just be obedient. Just work, 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 work. He doesn't do that. What does he do in Exodus 19? In verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now go to chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments. Why is that significant? God never starts with his commands. He always starts with his grace and his salvation and what he's done for us. I was with you. I delivered you. That's why you're doing the the, the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles is to remember. Remember when I brought you to the promise. I remember when I delivered you in light of these things, in light of my grace, in light of my mercy. Now live a life worthy of me. Now pursue godliness. I'm already with you. It's grace-driven effort. Now, now live a, a life. But if you, if you reverse this, absolute nightmare. If we, if we try to be all that God would want us to be and forgetting that we're already his and we already belong to him and he's already at work in us, we'll never be able to even make small beginnings. Jesus in Matthew 28, I, I love when he, he gives the call to the disciples, to the church for all times and all generations. Uh, one of our favorite texts around here is Matthew 28, to go and make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples. Verse 19. Baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. Now that sounds like a really difficult job. It is. You're not just going to go out and just, oh yeah, just go make disciples. No big deal. But what does he end with? I'm with you always <laughs> to the end of the age. He says, in the pursuit of this, remember, I'm with you doing this. If you're about these things, if you want to see people know Christ and grow in Christ, and if you want your, your church and your lives to be all that it can be, remember this, I'm already with you. Now go and baptize and go and teach and go and obey, right? Grace-driven effort. Grace always precedes obedience. Grace always precedes effort. And they work together in these beautiful, tangible ways. Paul talks that way in, in Philippians. You, you probably heard this text before. Same idea here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as, as you have always obeyed, so now only as in my presence, but much more in my abundance, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work among you. Grace-driven effort. Work it out. It's not work for it, not earn it, but work it out. Why? Because God is already with you for his good pleasure. That's what he loves to do. Work it out. Understand it. Fear and trembling. It's this idea of like, I, I should marinate myself so much in the scriptures and be part of this, this church family and hear the, the promises of God so I can work it out and understand all the implications of the gospel and God's truth and God's word so, so that I can live that out in every sphere of, of my life. But God is already with me. Not do it so that I am a ch- child of God, but do it because I already am. So, so we work it out. If you go to chapter 3, I just want you to see this very clearly. In verse 12, Paul still here says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. How does he press on to make it his own? Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. 
That's how you press on. That's how you, you, you become more like Christ. We, we can press on with grace-driven effort. Why? Because you're already his. That's how Paul understood it, right? Why was he willing to go to the ends of the earth? Why was he really getting beaten and shipwrecked? I mean, there had to be times where he's just like, Lord, really, is this, is this worth it? But it's because he already knew that he belonged to Christ, that he was already with him. He understood that the way in which we grow in godliness and the way in which we're transformed is grace-driven effort. That even as we, you know, we, we push the, I always think about when I, I, I think about this when I mow the lawn, um, is, well, I have two hands on the mower. You know, I, I might take one off. I don't, I don't know, sometimes if you get really fancy. But, um, but I have to push the mower to cut the grass. But I also know when I think about sanctification is that God has his hand on the mower at the same time. It's not push the mower and then God kind of comes along and goes, okay, I'm going to do some work. He's always with us and always has his hand on the mower. Maybe that analogy breaks down, but, but, but it's always there, even when I let go. But it's grace-driven effort. So, so God calls his people to rebuild the temple, but he's going to constantly remind them that I'm with you that I haven't abandoned you, I haven't forsaken you. Be strong, he says. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. I'm reminding you of who you are in Christ and what I've already accomplished and how I've delivered you. Now go and live a life worthy of that. So truth one, that's a big one. Transformation happens by grace-driven effort. Second truth, transformation happens through weakness, not strength, and for God's glory. That's a mouthful. Transformation happens through weakness, not strength, and for God's glory. Notice in in verse 7, And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God makes some pretty stunning statements here, doesn't he? He's saying this old temple that is burned down, that is in ruins, that, that, that was beautiful in the time of Solomon and all its splendor and all its glory. He's going, I'm going to do something even greater, even better, even more beautiful than what you saw uh, with Solomon. Now again, remember the disconnect here. God's people are going like, okay, that's a joke, right? Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember all this glory? Well, I'm going to do something even greater, even, even more beautiful. And the people are, are, are saying, how? That that's not possible. Like we're in shambles here. The economy's tanking. We're tanking. There's nowhere to worship. Like like, how in the world are you going to pull this this off? But see, it's it's important to remember that the temple was always about being a pointer to something else. It never was the end game for Israel. That we even talked about that last week, that the temple was always a pointer to the temple that would, would lay his life down, Jesus Christ, and on the third day be raised again. And, and that God would make this new people filled with the Holy Spirit, the temples of the Holy Spirit. That was always the end game. It wasn't about a, a geographical location or about the external beauty of this place that we would go and worship. Now Jesus says, well, you can worship me here or there. It doesn't matter. You worship me in spirit and truth. I mean, obviously, we, we want to worship together as, as God's people, but Romans 12 would say we can also go and worship God throughout the week and everything that we are as living sacrifices to God, all sacrifice temple language. 
But what is, what is God doing? How is he doing? Well, he's doing it through weakness, isn't he? Israel's small and insignificant in the grand scheme of human history. <laughs> like, hopefully we, we understand. Like, I think you, a lot of us have been around the scriptures long enough, but Israel's not impressive. There's a lot of impressive nations around that are stronger, have more bigger military and bigger money and, and all this kind of stuff. But Israel's not that. I mean, they just have slingshots and, like, rocks. But it's through weakness, not strength, that God is going to get glory here. That's what he's saying is that, yeah, it's in shambles. Of course it is. How in the world is, I mean, are you going to rebuild with this little ragtag group of people that, that have a hard time even loving me for even an instant? How, how in the world am I going to do what I need to do through you, through this little ragtag group of people? But that's exactly how God gets glory. He comes to the weak, not the strong. He comes to those who have realized they've come to the end of themselves. That's how he gets, gets glory. He wants to display his glory and his grace through us. And, and you know, texts like Ephesians 1, one we, we've mentioned a lot around here. But, you know, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, so even in redemption, he's saying, look how I take these ragtag group of sinners and I redeem them and I make them holy and I make them blameless before the foundation of the world. I've already been at work. I'm using the least of these and the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And I'm going to take this little ragtag Israel and I'm going to help, and they're going to be used by me to rebuild this temple, but it's not going to be for their glory. It's going to be for my glory because I use the weak things to reveal my power and to reveal who I am and how I can transform and save and redeem anything or anyone or any situation. It's, it's, it's through weakness, not strength, that we're were transformed. Do you ever ask this question? I do. Why doesn't God just change us, sanctify us completely when we become disciples of Jesus? Like, why doesn't he just do it like that? You ever, you ever wonder that? It'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? And, and I know a lot of your stories, I don't know all of your stories, but, but you know, some of us have these dramatic conversions, right? I mean, just in rebellion against God, you know, shooting heroin in our eyeballs and God came and redeemed us. Others grew up in the church, just slow process of God showing himself and coming alive to him, maybe as a teenager, maybe as a, as a young adult. Not, not dramatic at all, just kind of always been around the gospel, been around the church. Again, just as impressive. Don't, don't minimize that, but by the way, if you didn't shoot heroin in your eyeballs. It's probably better you didn't. But why doesn't he just change us in an instant. Like, why all the pain and the slowness and the struggle and the, right? Well, I think the scriptures give us a couple hints. One of those, you see Israel, again, you know, sometimes, I don't want to do this because we all do it, and I don't think it's, we should do it because it's not honest about ourselves, but like, you see Israel, and you're just like, you have access to God, you know, he's, he's speaking to you through prophets, he's making these promises, he's doing these miracles in front of you, and yet you still go, oh, I don't know right? But we do the same thing, right? I mean, disciples walked with Jesus, and they're just like, ah, yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, I saw him resurrect from the dead, just not sure, not sure. I have a cousin who can, who, who's done that. I mean, I've seen he's floated up into heaven. I mean, I'm just not sure, right? We're, we're stubborn. But notice how the, the gospel, uh, or Second uh, Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians 4, verse 7, says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down. I think there's a little hint here. Why doesn't this happen just instantly? It's because we're treasures in jars of clay. And again, in the ancient world, that, that, that really meant that, that we're, we're weak and we're fragile. That God's the potter, right? God, I mean, the, Isaiah 30 talks that way. God's the, the potter. We're the clay, right? We're just these weak vessels that God has to intervene and shape us and mold us. And, and again, if you've been around a, a, a clay pot, right, they're not that strong. They break quite easily. I remember my wife and I had this kind of big, giant pot on our front uh, porch, had some flowers in there, and the wind came and just blew it over and just shattered the thing. They're just not that, that strong. But see, that's the imagery that God uses for us, and, and, and why Paul talks this way is that it can show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That God can take these weak vessels, these sinful vessels, and he can redeem them and make them new and give them new life and put his spirit in them. And, and, and if you really look around, and if we ever slow down long enough to actually contemplate that and think about the miracle of salvation, the fact that you at one time didn't love God and now you love God, at one time you didn't really care about your neighbors, but now you kind of care about them a little bit, um, that's an absolute miracle, and that's about small beginnings. How does God take this heart that is so much built and bent away from him and aim it and steer it towards him? Stunning. But that's how he gets glory, because he goes, did you see what I did with Ryan? That guy was a mess. It's not because he was intelligent or smart or good. He was none of those things. Look, look at New City Church, right? We're celebrating eight years. How, how does God bring together all these ragtag people? I know I'm offending all of you, but, you know, these, they, they, it's actually, uh, you know, you should embrace that because that's where God gets, gets glory. That how can he even bring us together as a family, unite us around the gospel? We have all different gifts and backgrounds and testimonies and personalities, and yet he, he does this miraculous thing called the church. Like, there's a lot better things you could do on your Sunday morning. But we're here, aren't we? And I know a lot of your testimonies are, yeah, I, Sunday mornings, that's not where I would want to be five years ago, ten years ago. And it's not just about Sunday worship. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm trying to hit home is that God uses the weak things so that he gets glory to show it's my power. You can't change yourself. But when you embrace who you really are and we embrace who we really are, God gets a lot of glory and a lot of praise and a lot of honor. Those small beginnings. His power, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, is made perfect in weakness, in our weakness. And so here's what, what, I, what I'm learning, and I'm slow. But when I look at Israel in the Old Testament, it's a microcosm of our sanctification, isn't it? God's going to take this weak, unimpressive people and he's going to say, I love you because I love you. I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to bring you to the promised land and they're going to rebel against him and they're going to you know, turn from them. They're going to you know, be hard-hearted and stiff-necked and all the language that, 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 that the Old Testament uses and yet God is still saying, I'm with you and I love you. 
Don't forget who I am and what I've done for you. And then I go to the New Testament. I see the disciples, a microcosm of Israel, stubborn, stiff-necked. God, uh, uh, we, we love you, we love you. And then he goes to the cross and they're nowhere to be found. And not until the Spirit comes at Pentecost do they even begin to understand it, maybe in a little, little more full measure what this was all about and why Christ had to die and why he has a, had to be res- resurrected from the dead and why he's coming back and, and the church begins. We, we get that. But it's a microcosm of our sanctification. Small beginnings. I think a lot of times we think it's just a roller coaster up into heaven. But I like the roller coasters that do flips and loops. Amen? Like that'd be a really boring roller coaster, wouldn't it? But I think that's what happens in our lives. There's these dips and valleys, these, these seasons of dryness, these seasons of, of struggle, seasons of addiction, seasons of, of sin and repentance. There, there, there's all these, these seasons that, that God does, but what's so amazing is that in our transformation, God is getting glory because even in our weakness, he is strong. I would love for New City to be a place where people come in and go, you know, these aren't perfect people by any means, but God is at work in this place. Because I hear your stories and I go, that guy? That gal? God did what? He's using you in that way? How? How is that possible? That's what God does. That's who he is. That we were once strangers of God, now we're friends of God. We were strangers of one another, now we're in the family of God. And he's healing our addictions, he's healing our sickness, and he's doing it in these fractured jars of clays. Isn't that amazing? Three and four. I'll go through these quickly, they're not, they're not as long. But truth number three, transformation happens through union with Christ, not religion. Transformation happens through union with Christ, not religion. If you go back to Haggai, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. That's shalom, declares the Lord of hosts. This is wholeness and fullness. It's, 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 it's imagine, you know, spiritually and physically and, and emotionally. Everything, you know, has this wholeness and this fullness to it. That's what God's peace is all about. Rightness with God. Rightness with each other and with uh, creation. But then as we, we continue to, to look, what, what, happens to, <laughs> what happens to Israel, and this is our default mode, I think, is that we, we think, well, the way in which I'm going to be changed is that I have to get religious. And what I mean, not, not in the, the James, the good sense of you know, loving the orphan. I mean, James talks about religion in a positive sense. But what I'm talking about is that, that maybe the way in which I'm going to change, and maybe Israel's thinking, well, maybe the way that we can get, get in rights with God and have his blessing is that we've got to do more things for God. We got to show up, and we got to be obedient. We got to do, and then maybe God will will bless us. And that's what the religious spirit is all about. And so this this interesting exchange happens. I didn't read it at the beginning of the sermon, but in ten to, to fourteen, you notice here in eleven, actually eleven, it says, "Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy?" The priest answered, "No." Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And if you jump to verse 14, he says, so it is with the people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So so in Old Testament times, you'd have a priest who would actually apply and, and explain and teach the law or the word of God. 
And so this is a hypothetical question. Well, tell us who's clean and unclean. You know, if they touch this meat or this dead body, like, interpret that for us. That, that's what the, the priest would do. He was kind of like, you can imagine like a rabbi who would answer like questions for the people. They didn't have, they didn't have an ESV study Bible in front of them. Um, they didn't have access to the scriptures like we did. So, so the, the priests would be the ones to help them understand the scriptures and help them understand what was going on and how to imply it. But did you notice how the, the way Haggai answers the, the question, well, who's unclean? Everyone. What they offer there is unclean. The sin is too deep. The, 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 the flaw is too deep. The sin is too deep. It's, it's, it's we're all unclean. That's the problem. It's not who's clean, who's in, who's out. Jesus talks that way, right? It's not with the external that makes us unclean. It's, it's, it's what's inside of us that makes us unclean. That God has to do a, a renovation project and give us a new spirit and a new heart, right? So it's not about religion. It's not about what do I have to do to get clean again? What do I have to do to make God happy again? He says, you can keep giving me those offerings. And what's so confusing, I think, even about this text is God commands his people to give offerings to God. But he says it was never about the offering. It was about your heart before me. It was never, you know, that's what's so confusing. Like Isaiah 1, it's like, okay, God, you, you, you command us to give these offerings, but now you're saying our offerings aren't worthy of you. I'm really confused here. Because it was never about the offering. It was never about making yourself clean. It was about the heart behind it that says, says I'm giving my all to you. I, I, I'm laying down my sacrifice, my, my meat, my, 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 my grain offering, whatever it is, because it's showing that I love you and I trust you. And it's never about the offering in itself. It's because of who you are and what you've already done to me. I come as a living sacrifice. I, I come on Sundays to sing to you and worship you. I, I, I try to walk in obedience by the power of the Spirit because I, I love you. It's because of what you've done. I live as a living sacrifice for you. Why? Because of what you've already done for me. But religion's not going to get it done. It's union with Christ that allows this to happen. I mean, we have self-help in our culture, but we also have a religion, too, that's just, i got to get my life together, right? see this with addicts all the time. Okay, I, I get, you know, I'm getting freed from some addictions. i got to get religious, right? But i got to work hard. i got to make amends, right? But the invitation is to actually be united to Christ himself, not religion. And, and Ephesians 2, I think, makes that really clear. Because in Haggai, he talks about this peace that, that God wants to bring. He wants to bring to his people when they're united with him. And they, they trust him and they worship him. But, but notice what, what Ephesians 2, if I can find it, says. If you, if you jump in about 13, Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments, express in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now we could spend years unpacking that text. And there's hundreds, maybe thousands of books written just about those verses. It's not about religion. 
It's about this Christ who comes and preaches a message of peace where he, he says, you can have peace with God. You can have peace with each other. I'm, I'm breaking down the walls of Jew and Gentile. I'm making one new family. It's by my blood and by my cross that, that I'm making this uh, available to you. It's not about sacrifice. I've already done the sacrifice for you. It's not about self-help. It's not about fixing yourself up, trying to be moral, trying to be, be good. I, I, I've done all those things in your place that you couldn't do for yourself. It's not about religion, it's about union with Christ. And so the way you and I grow in Christ is by staying close to the Savior. By looking by faith, the author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews says, of what he's done and what he's accomplished. And everything flows from that. Our obedience flows that. Our service flows that. Our, our lives flow through that. We never move beyond the gospel. We always talk about it. We've talked about that for eight years as a church. Tim Keller says, you know, the gospel is not the ABCs of faith, like the training wheels. We just get in. Okay, we believe. Now what? It's, it's the A to Z. It's how we continue to grow in Christ. It's how we continue to grow in sanctification and godliness. We never move beyond it, right? It's not religion. It's union with Christ. I, I love the way the Belgic Confession, one of our um, confessions as a church is called the Belgic Confession. It was written about 500 years ago. In Article 26, I, I love the, the way it, it talks about union with Christ. And it goes into you know, how God was, Jesus was fully man and fully human. And then he, he gets to this point and he says, Suppose we had to find another intercessor who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies. And suppose we had to find one who had prestige and power. Who has as much of these as he who is seated at the right hand of the Father? And who has all power in heaven and on earth? And who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son? So then sheer unbelief has led to the practice of dishonoring the saints instead of honoring them. That was something the saints never did nor asked for, but which is coming with their duty as appears from their writings. They constantly refused. We should not plead here that we are unworthy, for it is not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Oh, my word. So good. So good. Not the Bible, but a very clear explanation of what the Bible teaches. There is no other intercessor. There is no other mediator. There is no other way that we can come to God. There is no other way in which we can be changed. It's not by our prayers. It's not by our offerings. It's not by religion. But it's the one by faith whose righteousness has been given to us. That should have been like an amen or hallelujah or something. I don't know. We're really quiet in here this morning. but um, la- <laughs> Amen. I sneak coffee. Truth four. We're almost done. We'll land the plane. Transformation happens through a future and secure hope. Transformation happens through a future and secure hope. Verse 19, God says he's going to bless Israel, which always just, but from this day on, I will bless you. You're just like, why? I mean, they're a mess. They're not doing what, what you told them to do. Like, you're going to bless them? He says, well, this is how I'm going to bless them. And he, he, he sets apart Zerubbabel in verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of, of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations, overthrow the chariots and their, and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of the brother. 
On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shittiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, like a signet ring. He doesn't say I'm going to put a signet ring. He says like a signet ring. A signet ring would be given to royalty, kings, a ring, a sign of authority and royalty and power. And so he says, Zerubbabel, one of the leaders of Israel that we talked about last week, that, that God said, I, I want you to go tell the people to rebuild the temple. I'm with you. And, 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 he, and he said, okay, God, we're going to do that. Now he's going to use Zerubbabel to be the chosen one, to be the royalty, to be the authority. Now, what we know about Zerubbabel is that Zerubbabel is in the line of David. See that from 1 Chronicles 3.19. He's in the family of David. We know David, the, the, the king that would come, the one that would ultimately be the pointer to the messianic king, Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel's in that line. He's a chosen one. He's set apart. Nothing fancy about Zerubbabel. Nothing, you know, he, has no, he doesn't have money. He doesn't, he's not this big ruler. I mean, this is Israel, right? You're not dealing with, with the other nations around. But you're going to be my chosen one. I'm going to put a ring on you, and, and you're going to be filled with royalty and power and, and strength. But, but if we follow that line of David, and you know where this is going, in Matthew 1, 13, who's in the line of David? Okay, if you don't know this answer, just we'll have some counseling afterward. Jesus Christ comes in the line of David. Why is that significant? Because all of this was never about the temple. It was all about pointer to greater realities that were coming, this Messiah that would come. It's about a God who keeps his promises. I'm going to take this, this no-name Zerubbabel, this ragtag group of people, and, and he's going to be born in the line of David. David's going to be this king. He's going to fail in every single way, and yet this Messiah is going to come in this ragtag line that isn't full of power and isn't full of might that are falling on their faces. It actually has you know, prostitutes and tax collectors and all these, these people in this family of God, and God is going to get all the glory through this, this Messiah who's the better and, and more complete and more competent and sinless Zerubbabel is going to come. But he's going to be a different kind of king. He's going to be one who saves by dying. He's going to be one who lays his life down for his people. He's not going to come sitting on a golden throne, but he's going to come on a donkey. And he's going to lay his life down for his children. He's going to become a ransom for their sins. And you see, why you and I can have Hope for the future is not because of you looking at your navel and going, I wish I was further along than this. Your hope has already been secured in Jesus Christ, the God who is at work in you, the one who came in the line of David. That doesn't mean we don't care if we're not farther along than we'd like to be, right? We're not about passivity, right? God still works by <laughs> grace-based you know, effort. But God is with us. And he's promised to be with us through the death and the resurrection of his son. And every week I need to hear that again, time and time again. Maybe you do too. It's why we sing. It's why we take the Lord's Supper every week. It's because every week, you, if you're like me, you look at yourself and just go, this is where I'm at. Like We're, we're still here. <laughs> we're still struggling. 
But I need to hear again the one who comes in the line of David, the better uh, Zerubbabel, the, the one who, who, is, who is sinless in every way, the one who by faith his righteousness has come to me, that his record has been given to me, that when God looks at me, he doesn't see all my sin and all my flaws. He sees the righteousness of Christ that clothes me. And maybe you don't believe that, but that's what the Christian faith is all about. That's what the scriptures teach. And, and what I love about um, the way the Apostle Paul talks about the Lord's Supper is he always, every, um, when we think about what we're doing in the Supper, is he always gives us hope. <laughs> and, and notice how he, he talks about the Lord's Supper, about this future hope. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So see what's going on here in the supper. It's, we're remembering what Christ did for us on the cross, that he, he laid his life down, he shed his blood to atone for our sins, that we couldn't approach this holy God. We, we can't get religious and, and lay down our offerings and somehow just accept it, but it was by his work on our behalf that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed. And then he laid his body down, he broke his body so that we could have new life in him. He resurrected from the dead on three after the third day. So, so we remember this thing that happened in the, in, the, in the past, but he also says that as you do this, whenever you do this together as a church family, remember the grace that is sufficient for you right in your midst, that God's at work in you. And, and not even that, remember the future, <laughs> that Christ is returning to make all things new. So you look at yourself and you go, geez, I don't, I don't think I, man, I can't believe I'm not as far along as I am. Well, there's hope that's already been secured in the future when he returns. It will make us all new and make the whole world new. And all that's happening with simple bread and cup. And that's why we do it every, every week. So if you are a believer in Christ, I, I want to invite you to come to the table this morning and, and remember what God, God has done for you in the past, what he's doing in your midst, and what he's going to do in the future. We have two lines up in the front. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. Um, if you have uh, any kind of allergies, gluten-free, nut-free bread is there in the middle. Please feel free to take that. And if you're not a, a believer in Christ, we, we, we want you to consider, uh, consider that. What, why not? What's holding you back? What, what are the questions that you have? What are the struggles that you, you have? We've all been there at one time or place, and we'd love to talk to you more about that. If you want to talk to me about that or this message, I'd love for it to chat with you, our elders. or um, p- Please... Uh, consider that. Uh, we have some prayers in the, in the worship guide that you can uh, kind of look over. Um, we just ask that you stay, stay seated. Maybe, maybe you're sitting in this place and you're realizing, man, I think, I think I'm a Christian now. I don't know. Something happened. I, I'm trusting in the Savior. I, I don't know. I've never heard it like this. Maybe you want to talk to me about that too. We'd love to, to chat more about that. So with that, let us pray. Lord, thank you that even in the small beginnings you are at work among us. Thank you for a short little book like Haggai that can remind us that if you were at work at Israel, with Israel, and you are that same God, well, how much more are you at work with us? That you haven't abandoned us, you haven't forsaken us. But it's in weakness that you are glorified. And your power is displayed in us and through us and through your church. And I'm humbled by that, God. So God, anyone in this room that feels overwhelmed or feels despair or feels 
like, like things just aren't moving the way they would want them to, God, I just pray you'd give them hope by your spirit and what your word says about them that's true, that the work you began in them, you will complete. And where there's despair, where there's just a sense of religious spirit that's just about me working for God and being good and moral and God needs to bless me, God, would you kill that spirit in us too? I think we sway from, from polars to polars, so help us. And nourish us, God, as we take the bread and drink the cup to remind us that what you did in the past gives us hope for the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.